Tara Jasmine Griffin is the William B. Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and African American Studies at Columbia and the Chair of the new Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies. Farrah is the author of many books, including Who Set You Flowing, The African American Migration Narrative, and most recently, Harlem Nocturne, Women Artists and Progressive Politics During World War II. I invited Farrah to the Dean's Table to reflect on how she became interested in African American studies, to talk about her book on the Black Migration, to discuss her research on Harlem, and to give us insight into the process of establishing a Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies at Columbia. Welcome to the Dean's Table, Farah. Thank you, Fred. I'm glad to be here. So let's start with your first book, What Set You Flowing? Uh, a book about the Great Migration. So as you know, it's a topic that's been studied for decades. But your book is the first sustained study of black migration portrayed through African-American literature, letters, music, and painting. What got you interested in studying the black migration? So I think there are a few um, sort of sources of that. One is growing up um, knowing that migration was part of my family story, Mm -hmm. you know, that I I grew up in Philadelphia and my grandparents on both sides were migrants and I knew that. And, you know, it sort of informed everything from what we ate to Mm -hmm. what people thought of as home. And so I think that was it. And then I remembered um, very, you know, as a teenager reading novels uh, like James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain and realizing, oh, you know, he's writing about migration, right? Mm-hmm. That it must have been more than just my family right? or the people in my neighborhood. So that's what first made me begin to think about it. And then um, in graduate school, I was reading very widely, broadly mm-hmm. in African-American literature and African-American sociology. And I realized that the social scientists, mm-hmm. um, the historians, the sociologists had really spent a lot of time talking about documenting, thinking about migration, and that there was this whole other wing of the artist um, who had not been talked about in that same way. Mm -hmm. So that's what made me decide that's what I wanted to study a little more, you know, and focus my dissertation on. Where were your grandparents from? So my um, grandmother, my my maternal grandparents um, are from Georgia and um, South Carolina near the Sea Islands, and my paternal grandparents are also from Georgia. So you mentioned this earlier, but did growing up in Philly give you a unique experience about the black migration? Oh, I think so. First of all, everybody who I grew up around, they were all the children of migrants or or grandchildren of migrants. And most of them in Philly, most of those people had come from the Carolinas, especially North Carolina and Georgia. We all had these um, grandmothers who were Mm -hmm. Southern. We attributed so much to their southernness, the fact that they could cook, mm-hmm. we yeah. attribute it to their southernness. Um, if they had a certain sense of religiosity, we attribute it. And I think that without knowing it, we were, you know, for lack of a better word, theorizing the richness of that experience because we felt that those of us who had people who were from the south had a better grounding in Mm -hmm. some ways Mm -hmm. than, you know, there were certain bad boys, I remember. (laughs) And I remember us saying, nobody ever cooks them a meal. Like, you know, they eat, they buy cheesesteaks and that's what they eat. But there was something about if you had somebody who 
Cook cooked you a meal. Some greens. Some greens. Some and, exactly. Beans, some and it felt like you had to have a balanced <laughs> plate. And those women cooked all day long. So I think we, we felt like there was something that grounded us, even as we were growing up in this very urban setting. And Philadelphia, I didn't realize it then, but I think that Philadelphia was a kind of up-south city. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very much in touch with its migrant experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I still feel that as I go oh, yeah. to Philadelphia. Absolutely. I, it, it reminds me, I read something of yours where you talked about your mom and the women or the girls in the community. And I remember this particular story, which resonates with me so much, about New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. I was a kid in, in Atlanta, as I said before, my great-grandmother would have me get up early New Year's Day. We live right around the corner from her. Right. Because there were no women who could go into the house on New Year's Day. If you did, you had bad luck for the entire year, right? And so I was the youngest. And I did this somewhere between 8 years and, and 13 years old. But I remember you talking about this this experience in the in the essay. Absolutely. If you came to her house on New Year's Day and she had not had a man cross her step, you were not getting in. Right. You know, that showed, so yes, it was very much a part of that tradition, as, as traditional as having black eyed peas and collard greens on New Year's <laughs> Day, was that a man had to be the first person to enter into her house. Otherwise, she would have a year of bad luck. Yeah. Right? And I think we carried all those kinds of traditions, mm-hmm. you know, with us. Uh, my grandmother, I remember, would make us be quiet in a storm. Oh, yeah. You, you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't, yeah, just couldn't be on the phone. You couldn't be on the phone. The you Lord's had to turn, doing his work. That's right. The Lord is doing his work. You respect <laughs> right. it. You turn right. the lights out. And my father was blasphemous because he would go through the house and turn the lights on and everything. And we just knew that that was going to cause us all kinds of trouble. But I think all those things they brought with them yeah. from the South and, and, and it continued to inform our existence in the city. Yeah, I call it the second diaspora, right? Yeah. The Southern diaspora. That's right. And it's because I feel when I left Georgia and went to Washington, which is still a southern city, mm-hmm. and then on to um, Chicago, upstate New York here, you know, the fir- one of the first things I searched out was a good soul food restaurant. That's right, right. <laughs> um, as well as, a you know, a, a, a decent church that I could relate to. Right. But um, the, the migration has had such a profound impact on black America. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. It's one of the reasons why I love um Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns mm-hmm. because she she treats it like the epic that it is, you know, mm-hmm. an epic of a people. And so it it truly is. And the ways that those, you know, southern spaces shape those northern cities. So like Detroit and Chicago being shaped by the migrants mm-hmm. there and Philly and Newark being shaped by the migrants who came up that route. I think there's still so much that needs to be told about that story. Yeah. So I'm going to shift a little bit, but still focus on Philadelphia. You knew this great man by the name of Judge A. Leon Higginbotham, uh, who wrote that wonderful book I read on race and law as an undergraduate in the matter of color, race and the American legal process. Right. How did you meet Judge Higginbotham? Yeah, so, you know, it really warms my heart to think about him. There was an organization called something like the... um, Association for Negro Affairs. Mm -hmm. As part of that organization, there was a youth kind of development program Mm -hmm. and uh, got black students to be introduced to, at that time, the professions were medical profession, legal profession. And he had 
summer enrichment classes for students and after-school enrichment classes. And I became involved in that program when I was um, a high school student. And I was at a very kind of a scholarship student at a kind of elite school. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really need the academic enrichment, so then I was placed in the internship, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So um, I was placed with legal professionals. And one of the prestige internships was with A. Leon Higginbotham, who was a federal court judge. He had always had AFNA students. I was the first girl. He'd always had boys. I think I started working for him in 10th grade after school. And we became very close. We decided that um, he would be my godfather. So when I refer to my godfather, people think that I come from this elite black family who, <laughs> you know, who, um, you know, and I got to be A. Leon Higginbotham's, you know, he stood up at my christening. Right. But that's not it. We chose each other. And I remember nice. him saying, um, how shall we define this relationship? And we decided that he would be my godfather. But he was my mentor mm-hmm. and a father figure. Mm-hmm. And he had already written in a matter of color. Right. And it was extraordinary to me that you could get a law degree and still write history. And so I became his research assistant. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. My senior project was um, working out at Penn's Law Library doing research for him. Wow, that's amazing. And I did research for what would become the second book that he wrote. Wow, wow. So that's amazing. So you went on to Harvard Mm -hmm. um, where you were undergraduate there. Uh, What was that experience like? Harvard was a kind of place where if you were a Mm self-starter, it was amazing. If you worked well independently, you know, it was extraordinary. It was also very easy to get lost between the cracks. Mm -hmm. I think I thrived there for very clear reasons. Now, what's that? I had... A rooming group of five other young black women, mm-hmm. and you know we were family, and we got each other through the difficult emotional stuff. And then I had two extraordinary professors, and most students don't at Harvard didn't get to develop mm-hmm. those relationships. Who were they? So the historian Nathan Huggins. Oh wow! Um, okay. And the literary scholar Werner Solars, and both of them had been recruited from Columbia. <laughs> yeah, and so I took classes with them. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that in my other classes, I would have been lost. I was in big lecture classes. Nobody noticed me. Mm -hmm. But they, you know, they took notice and they supported me. I couldn't make up my mind between history and literature. They made it so that I could do both. Uh Um, In in Nathan Huggins' class, I read all the sort of canonical black history books, but also the social sciences Right. I read, you know, so I always felt like I I never felt like I was a social scientist, Mm -hmm. but I felt like social science was informing me. And then through Werner, I had been reading black literature on my own, but he was the one that gave me a kind of systematic Mm -hmm. way to think about the creation of a canon. And so those professors um, made the difference. And one extraordinary experience for me at Harvard, to me, this is this explains Harvard to me. Um, there was one black woman on the faculty, just one, Who and that, that was Eileen Southern, oh, the, music the music historian. Yeah. Right? She was the only one. There were no classes on black women. You know, there was barely, there was starting to be, Nathan Huggins had black history classes. Right. Um, was he chair when you were there? He was chair of yeah. the department, department right? Yeah. I remember um, a professor named Billy Joe Harris came and he taught a black male, black, black men, black women literature course. But... There was a young woman 
there named Janet Bixby. Mm-hmm. She was, we were undergraduates, and mm-hmm. we were both discovering sort of mm-hmm. black women's history on our own. She mm-hmm. was a young white woman, mm-hmm. and it was not represented on the curriculum at all. Mm-hmm. So we knew that there was this burgeoning field, mm-hmm. and we went to Professor Huggins, and we went to people over at Radcliffe, mm-hmm. and they gave us, like, support and money. Mm-hmm. And we had this major academic conference where we invited scholars in the field who were shocked that they thought Harvard was finally doing it. They didn't know it was these two little <laughs> undergraduates um, because we had the resources, uh-huh. you know. And so we were able to have one of the first conferences on the history of black women in America at mm-hmm. Harvard mm-hmm. because history of black we women. did it on uh-huh. our own. Mm-hmm. We were able to do it. And, and we came up with the idea and we were, it was a critique of Harvard, right, really. Right. But then they gave us all the resources to do what we wanted to do. Do you recall who you were, who, some of the people you invited? Mm-hmm. Paula Giddings was the keynote. Mm-hmm. Um, when and Where I Enter had just come out, I think. Right. Betty Collier Thomas yes. spoke. Mary Helen Washington spoke. Wow. I think Deborah McDowell spoke. So it was a who's who of who would become the field. Right. Yeah. Right, right. So what was it? What was African American studies? like at Harvard when you were there? Fiercely Mm under-resourced. You know, it had a faculty who was very committed. Mm -hmm. And then there were, it's one of those places where everybody came through. So, you know, um, people would come through and teach a class. Or I first met Alice Walker there. I first met Toni Morrison there because people came and gave readings and you got to meet them. But it was very under-resourced and our professors were very devoted to us. Mm -hmm. Unlike the rest of Harvard, you right? Know, you got <laughs> right. a lot of attention in that department. We were in this little house on Dunster Street, mm-hmm. way on the margins of campus. Uh-huh. Um, Which is not the case. Not today the case today at all. Not at all. Today. Yeah, it's been wonderful. But we're going to get there a bit. Uh-huh. But we're going to get there through Yale because I couldn't think of of a greater contrast. I know. <laughs> Then your experience at Harvard and when you went to graduate school at Yale, which I would dub as was sort of the golden age of black studies. Yeah. The faculty there included uh, Henry Louis Gates, who's now chair of African-American mm-hmm. studies at Harvard, Hazel Carby, mm-hmm. uh, the philosopher Cornel West, the feminist theorist Bell Hooks, political theorist Adolph Reed, many others. What was that experience like? It was mind-blowing. And you're, you're right. It was the exact opposite of Harvard. Yale was so different in many mm-hmm. ways that I kind of wished I had gone there as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Um, Skip just left when I got there. Oh, had he? Okay. I mean, he had just left, but he was felt. Robert Steptoe was there. John Blassingame was yeah, there. the historian. Mm-hmm. The art historian Sylvia, Sylvia Boone was there. It was just vibrant and it was, it was just amazing. And I think about my cohort of graduate students. When I got there... The people who welcomed me um, were Tara Hunter, who would go on to become the historian, and Saidia Hartman was there. Errol Lewis, who's now a well-known journalist, was there. So it was like both the people teaching, but also my classmates. It was probably the richest intellectual experience I had, both in and out of the classroom. I took courses with both Adolph Reed and Cornel West, even though they were feuding. <laughs> I had both of them. And at I learned, the same time? At the, I, I had one in the fall and like one oh, in the spring in the or something. Same year. <laughs> and they um and I learned so much from both of yeah, them. Yeah. You know, again, I think that was the interdisciplinary model, right? So mm-hmm. here I was, I, I knew I was interested in history Mm-hmm. and or literature. Mm-hmm. I took, oh, so you hadn't decided yet? I hadn't, which is why I did American Studies. It was an oh, interdisciplinary not discipline. In, in English and, not in English. Oh, I did it not. Was, I did American Studies. Um, 
And I took a course with Robert Steptoe and a course with John Blassingame and a course on black women's history with a woman named Deborah Thomas. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was really it was one of the most important experiences of my intellectual life. And, you know, just the excitement. Hazel came Mm -hmm. just as I was embarking on my dissertation. She was there and on my dissertation committee. Oh, she was? She was on my committee. Um, Michael Denning, her husband, was also on my committee. You know, Brian Wolf, Jean-Christophe Agnew, the um, French feminist theorist Margaret Homans was there. It was just—and you were encouraged just to explore and, you know, bring these conversations together. So it was amazing. It really was. So I I didn't know that you you had done your work in American studies. Yeah. So I thought it was English and comparative lit. So, right. but I still have this question because you you do work in literature. Yeah. Why is it important that you can use literature to understand African American studies? Yeah. I think that literature has been such an important way for black thinkers to sort of think through what it means to be black Mm -hmm. in America, in the new world, in the world. Our most important literary figures are among our most important thinkers. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's true of literature in general, but especially of African-American literature, that one is not fully informed about black life if you aren't also reading what black creative writers have had to say about that experience. And that's what who set you flowing let me do hmm. it let me put them in conversation like with the social scientists who I was reading right. so right with Drake and Caton right you know black metropolis exactly I wrote about Chicago right 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 so I want to shift a bit um, because after you leave Yale you return to Philadelphia yeah after graduate school mm-hmm. and you taught for several years at University of Pennsylvania it must have been great finding a wonderful job in your hometown. <laughs> was that your plan all along? No, it was not my plan. I had no intention of returning to Philadelphia ever. So my um my actually first job was in Hartford at Trinity College. Oh, it was. And I, I had a dissertation fellowship there that turned into a job. Oh, I didn't know that. And it was, you know, it was a great place to start. Then this job opens up at Penn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I got a call from Evelyn Higginbotham. Mm-hmm who was my godfather's wife at right, the time. Right. And she said, you need to apply for this job. And I was like, God. Oh. She was on faculty at the time she was in on the history faculty. department. She was on faculty in history department, right. but she was on that search committee. Oh. So she said, send your stuff and apply for this job. So I sent it. And then when I got the offer, I was like, there's no way I can tell my mama that I got a job at a premier institution in Philadelphia and not go. So I went back home and... Penn was a very good place for me as a young professor. That's amazing. You're more brave than 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 I was <laughs> uh, because uh, I had an opportunity to go back to Atlanta to teach at Emory. Oh, did you? And How did you say no? It was very difficult. Of course. It was very difficult. But, you know, at least for me, being that Southerner, right, I have aunties, yep. uncles, cousins, yep. godmother, yes. godfathers, great-grandmother. <laughs> Everybody, everybody, and I just saw all the chores that I would be doing. Oh yeah, and that's what I ended up doing. Right, <laughs> so I went home, and you know I'd grew from kind of grown up on the edges of Penn's campus. I was one of those little kids who was in the summer sports camp that, mm-hmm. that Penn had. Then I'd worked for Judge Higginbotham, and 
And my family really looked up to that, like, you know, pin. But I went home and I was home. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, my um, my teachers were still there and my family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was called on for every crisis and, yes. you know, and every everything. program. Everything. Yes. Everything. Yeah. So, um, yes, I, I did have you that experience. <laughs> I survived it. But one thing I have to say was uh-huh. the chance to come to New York for me right. was also a chance to be anonymous. I longed for anonymity. Yeah. 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 So how did you end up coming to Columbia? So I had agreed to be undergraduate chair of the English department at Penn. 500 majors, one of the biggest majors, and I was, you know, trying to get the curriculum together and (laughs) all of this stuff. And it was, I was just going insane. And I was sitting in that big office and I got a call, mm-hmm. phone rang, and it was Manning Marable. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners, could you tell, tell yeah. them who Manning Marable So Manning Marable was, you know, an extraordinary historian, a kind mm-hmm. of historian of the black left, of African-American history. Mm-hmm. And he had come to Columbia in 1993 mm-hmm. to found the Institute for Research in African-American Studies. Mm-hmm. And he was a kind of leading figure in that epoch of black mm-hmm. studies, the black studies movement. Mm-hmm. And I also was a part of um, something else here at Columbia already, which was the Jazz Study Group. Oh, right. Founded by Robert Mm O'Mealy. And that was an interdisciplinary group of scholars and journalists and artists from all over a national group. And and that had become sort of the center of my intellectual life. Mm -hmm. And Bob was sort of building Jazz Studies here. So it was those two very different enterprises Mm -hmm. that spoke to me, one speaking to me, intellectually and politically, mm-hmm. and the other one speaking to kind of where my work was going in terms of jazz studies. And so um, I looked forward to the opportunity to maybe mm-hmm. be here. But it was that call from Manning that really made me go ahead and submit my material. So coming here, I, I, I don't know if you were working on um, Harlem prior to coming to Yeah, New I was York. not. My work on Harlem really took shape when I got here. here. So tell us then about your most recent book, Mm -hmm. Alum Nocturne, Mm -hmm. Women Artists and Progressive Politics During World War II. Um, What was that book about? So really what I like to say, it's a book about a place and a time. Mm -hmm. And three women artists let me tell that story about this place and Mm -hmm. this time. And, you know, it's kind of a love song to New York and to Harlem and to a generation Mm-hmm. of people. So the genesis of that book, and again, I, it would not have taken the shape it did if I were not here. Mm-hmm. The genesis of that book was I did some research for, at the request of, commissioned by the playwright and producer George C. Wolf. He was doing a show at the Apollo, mm-hmm. and he wanted some research to be done, and he asked me to do it. And he, I remember him saying to me, What I want to know is the average man standing on the corner in August 1943 when the riot breaks out, what is he thinking? Mm -hmm. And I thought, how am I going to find out (laughs) what he's thinking? So that started me down the path doing this Harlem research. And then I wrote two sets of liner notes for reissues of songs, um, reissues of a Dinah Washington album and a Lena Horne album. And I... Being an academic, I totally over-researched, and I spent hours in the Schomburg and fell in love with the 1940s as a period 
And it was a period that I felt was understudied and under-researched. And I fell in love with black people mm-hmm. of that period, that mm-hmm. generation. Right. Just amazing. Extraordinary. Extraordinary generation. And so I had done all this research and I was I knew that I wanted to write about this period and I wanted to write about black people in this period. I just didn't know what my angle was going to be. And what I realized, I started noticing that there were a number of women who kind of emerged in this period. And so one question was, what was it about this period that made it possible for them? And they were very different from the Harlem Renaissance women. Mm-hmm. And how were they different? And then I, I, I started with an assumption. And I always tell my students that your responsibility as a scholar is to dig past your assumptions. So my assumption was that these women were working and that they didn't get any of the attention that they deserved for their work because they were women, and that's the way it goes. But I realized in doing my work, when I dug deeper, is that they got a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And the question wasn't like that they didn't get attention. It was why didn't we know them now? What happened? And the Cold War happened. McCarthyism happened. Exactly. That's what happened. So after that, it became, okay, which are the women am I going to write about? Because I had so many of them. Mm -hmm. And I picked the three because they were three people who um, had been very, had gotten critical acclaim Mm -hmm. in these three different areas, who were all interested in questions of class as well as race and gender. Right. And yet they weren't household names. And so I thought, one, I could explain how that happened. And two, maybe I could interest people in learning more about them. So I got Ann Petrie, who I'd worked on Mm -hmm. since my dissertation, Mary Lou Williams, who I had begun learning about, mm-hmm. and Pearl Primus, who I knew less about. And I right. hadn't written about dance. I'd written about music. I'd written about literature. But the challenge was to write about dance. Right. And Mary Lou, I almost didn't write about because her music was so hard. She's um, a pianist, but she's also a composer and arranger. She arranged for Andy Kirk. She arranged for Duke Ellington. Mm. Um, she was a genius, you know. Mm-hmm. And her work, her music is very complex and complicated. Mm-hmm. But I had a good friend who was a co-author in another project. And mm-hmm. I said, I'm not writing about Mary Lou. She's too hard. And he said, that's why you should write about her. <laughs> you might learn something. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got those three women. You've also written about the famous collaboration between um, Miles Davis and John Coltrane, mm-hmm. both of whom I just love. Yes. Yeah. Can yes. you say a little bit about that? Yeah, that was a project that was brought to me by my co-author. He had been approached by an editor who read an article that he wrote, Salim Washington. He's a mm-hmm. musician and a scholar. And they'd ask him to write about a set of records, a specific little set of records that they did. And he, he asked me to co-write it with him. And he was someone who was deeply entrenched in Train and loved Train. And mm-hmm. I was deeply entrenched in Miles and loved Miles. And so we collaborated and um, wrote this book about their time together. And the way they sort of, I think that initially the editor had in mind this sort of combative, competitive relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think it was around the time there was a big show in New York of Matisse and Picasso about their <laughs> rivalry, the rivalry of the two great geniuses. Right. But that's not Miles and Train's story at all. And so we decided to take it on, but to tell a different story about how they push each other, but not in that kind of fiercely break-you-down, competitive battle way. And Miles is actually the more accomplished figure when Train enters into it. And then Train becomes this extraordinary artist in his own right. 
and eventually has to leave and follow his own path with Miles's blessings. I, you know, I love, um, I enjoy any opportunity to collaborate. Some of my best experiences are collaborative ones, intellectual collaborations, and that was, that was one of those. Yeah. So let's talk about the new department. Yeah. You've been named chair. Yes. <laughs> and you've been busy. <laughs> oh, have I? Yes. yes. So many of our listeners might not know this, but it took years, mm-hmm. if not decades, right. um, for Columbia to establish a department yes. in Black Studies. Yes. Why do you think it took so long? I think there are a number of factors. You know, the first time you have people talking about a department of African-American studies is around 68. You know, 68 is a watershed moment at Columbia Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. And among the demands that the students make is for a department and for more courses in African-American studies. And we begin to see a number of courses on the books. And then again in the 80s when students begin to make demands for, like, ethnic studies and African-American studies, you see that again. In 93, when other institutions are either creating African-American studies departments in the early 90s or reinvesting in them like Harvard Mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. Uh, What Columbia does is Columbia recruits Manning, Marable, Uh who is both political scientist and a historian, to come and establish the institute. And Manning chose to do it as an institute because he believed that African-American studies was fundamentally an interdisciplinary enterprise. And Columbia at that time, said that we don't do interdisciplinary departments, we do discipline. So Manning, you know, found it largely as a a very social Mm science-heavy program. In that way, it differed from Yale and from Harvard. Yale was more on the cultural studies model, and Harvard had, like, the literary studies part. He wanted direct impact on politics and policy. That's exactly what Manning saw, was a direct impact on politics and policy. So he created it with that vision. When I came, I was the only humanities scholar (laughs) appointed in IRAS. And, you know, there was always talk of creating a department. And, you know, Sometimes those of us in the Institute, we liked the sort of autonomy that mm-hmm. institutes had, and yet we didn't have the autonomy to tenure and hire right. people. Um, and then we had great leadership. You mm-hmm. know, we were able to pull some things off. I mean, it's so incredible. we had um, Manning, and then, of course, you know, Fred is being modest, but he was one of our great <laughs> leaders, Thank too, you. who really, I think, I think it's through what Fred did is when we really saw the limitations, like because we... Mm-hmm. Under your leadership, we did everything it was possible to do, do as an institute, right? Fellows and, you, and trying exactly, to bring people in. Exactly. And, you know, we just brought more people in. You got resources to bring more people in. We did everything that was that we could do with that limitation. And we were hit up against because we also, you know, I remember trying very hard to bring some people mm-hmm. in. And not being able to get the kind of departmental partners that we needed yes, to do that. very difficult. Right? And, so and it was I th- a miracle uh, that we were able to get the ones that we that did. That we did. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it was that experience, you know, coming out of your leadership that said, okay, maybe we've reached the limits of what an institute can do, do alone. Yeah. And then um, under Sam Roberts, we began having these extensive retreats, mm-hmm. planning out what would go mm-hmm. into a proposal for the department. And then the recommendation that came out of that committee was that it's time for IRS to go ahead and pursue departmentalization. And, you know, my colleagues asked me to come 
front that effort. <laughs> and so I did. So that, And it was one of those things where the, the universe aligned. We were ready mm-hmm. to all the work that we had been doing over the decades. Right. The university was ready, mm-hmm. right? So then it was just a matter of taking it through all the steps. Yeah. It's been extraordinary. I am so happy. <laughs> oh, you know, it's one of those I things. I so happy. I mean, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. one of those things that we, you know, and, and you know this having worked through as director. Mm-hmm. There are few things in your career where you, except for our books, right? Right. Few things where you can set a goal and make up a set of plans and then see it through. And it's collective. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what, again, talking about loving collaboration, this is something that we can own collectively. Right. So what do you think the impact of the department would be on the field? I think it's going to be incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we have already, we already have a kind of leadership in right. the field, right. right? Because of the people we have here and the work that we're doing. And now we institutionalize that and we mm-hmm. provide support for it. It's going to have impact in the kinds of knowledges that get produced, mm-hmm. the kinds of people who we can attract here. So many people want to be at Columbia to build upon what the foundation that's already here. And then in the next two years, we hope to have a Ph.D. program. And that's going to be very impactful because that's the future of the field. It's the future scholars that will shape the field, its directions, its discourses. And so I think it's going to be, it's already been felt, but it's going to be felt even more deeply. Okay. Now, I have a final question. So you're going to have to give me some behind-the-scenes juicy tidbits here. You were on the Pulitzer Prize jury. Yes, I was. That selected rapper Kendrick Lamar's yeah. Damn Album mm-hmm. for the 2018 Pulitzer Prize right. winner in music. Yes. Now, many were surprised. I was elated. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How did the jury come up with that decision? Yeah, you know, the jury has the opportunity to... We listen to a lot of music, uh-huh. um, and you're, it's, it's music at the highest level of achievement. Mm-hmm. And what we realize is that some of the music that we were listening to across genres like jazz and mm-hmm. classical, classical, which are usually the right, winners. usually the winners. Right. We were hearing a lot of influence of hip hop. You know, like we were hearing it in operas mm-hmm. and in jazz forms and in classical forms. We could hear it, and so we thought that's interesting. And yet we don't have any hip-hop here. And what people sometimes don't know about the Pulitzer is that we get nominees, Mm -hmm. but the committee can also nominate. Oh. Right. So that nomination came from the committee. And there was no resistance at all. A member of the committee suggested it. Some people backed it. Other people said, well, okay, let's listen. Because we had listened over three days deeply. So let's go home Mm -hmm. and really listen to this. Mm -hmm. And then we came back. And there really, it was, you know, deep discussion, serious engagement with the music. And what the committee that I was part of, we forwarded three nominations, you know, and and two of them could be more defined in what we call Western classical music. And we felt that the Kendrick Lamar was right up there because his music is so capacious in its influences, you Mm -hmm. know. And so we forwarded, we knew that, we knew we were doing something historic. Right. We did not know that the final committee was going to select it. Oh. Right? So even doing that already was Mm -hmm. something that was major. But we started, you know, they weren't allowed to tell us, but we started getting a feeling when we got a notice saying, there might be some press inquiries about the winner. And that's how we knew, okay, Okay. (laughs) this is going to be Kendra. And I think we all felt really good about the winner. 
Right. Yeah. That's incredible. It was really amazing. I wish I was a fly on the wall. But I'm curious to see if because of that, that it opened up for more hip-hop nominations. Mm. And then people who are real hip-hop heads, they were really happy, but they were like, I don't know, like, wow, it's too bad it couldn't have been Nas at some point. Or it couldn't have been that. And, and, yeah. and it's true. Yeah, because right? there were those it's before. It's true, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things we were aware of, you know, Duke Ellington never got the Pulitzer. I did not right? know that. And oh, we thought we don't want to do to like these art forms what has been done in the past, where you just miss them. You miss and the Coltrane boat. got it way later. Yeah, on way later, like some special it. thing, right? Yeah. So I think that's what we were also aware of too. Is like you know, hip hop has been around a long time. It's mm-hmm. been around for decades now, more right. than a couple of generations. It's about time. So it was about time. Yeah, that's wonderful. Or Ferrer, thanks so much for coming through the dean's table. Thank you this has so been much incredible. for having me. Thank you. Dean's Table is produced by Destry Maria Sibley, with production assistance from Jack Riley. Our technical engineers are A.J. Mangone and Ariana Sullivan. Our lead researcher is Kella Dieterville. Our branding is by Jessica Lillian. Our theme music is by Imperial. I'm Dean Harris.